Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. listeners and welcome to another episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Rad. And I am Dr. G. And we have been tracing Rome's history from the founding of the city for years now. And we're many years into Rome's history as well. So that's exciting news. We're keeping pace with uh, the events as they happen. We are. I mean, the 420s are just like streaming by me. I can't, I feel like I can't keep up. We're moving so quickly. They are flying by. I think this is a real indication of what happens when we lose some of our source material. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly Dionysius, who is, uh, shall we say, more verbose. Somewhat of a gas bag. (laughs) Indeed. I, I hope he does come back, though. I'm looking forward to hearing from him again. It's been too long. Look, I suspect we've only got fragments from here on down. I know, but whenever he pops in to say hello, you know, gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Prepare to be excited because he <gasps> might be popping in with a fragment in this very episode. <laughs> well, you know what? Of, of any years, I wouldn't be surprised that it's this year that we're about to discuss, which is 423 BCE. But before we get into 423, Dr. G, oh, God, so rhymy. I think we need to pause and recap. And see what happened in 424 BCE. Well, I will really just be throwing back to you because 424, I had almost literally no evidence to the extent that I had to talk about what was Rome's history of founding colonies in the very early Republic, as far as we can discern. Look, fair enough, fair enough. Look, 424, it wasn't perhaps the most memorable of years. We've had quite a few of these weird years in the 420s where It seems like kind of not a lot might be going on, but we did have a little bit of our old favourites, which was Troublesome Tribunes. There's nothing that we love more than a Troublesome (laughs) Tribune. (laughs) It's true. It's true. We do like troublemakers of the plebeian persuasion. (laughs) We definitely do. So we had some Tribunes that were complaining about the lack of plebeians that were earning themselves madrasses, even though technically with this option of military tribune with consular power, technically we should be seeing plenty of plebeians in power. And yet somehow they are absent. Mm, The concerns are real. Yes, exactly. And the tribunes were so fed up with the lack of plebeians even running for office that they were threatening to say, you know what? Let's just get rid of this whole idea altogether and we'll just have the patricians forever and that would maybe make you happy, wouldn't it? It's such a typical patrician solution to a problem. <laughs> no, that was the Tribune saying Oh, that. no. <laughs> yeah, they were like, we're just so, they're like, it's, it's actually worse that we have the option and yet nobody's doing it because then that seems to imply that actually... We're useless. Nobody is worthy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Why are we even here, guys, if you're not going to make use of us? (laughs) Precisely. And so they're proposing that. And with finally, finally, they have got through to the plebeians. And we actually have some plebeians allegedly running for office and campaigning on the kinds of measures that we would normally see, you know, plebeians run with. So things like, I think they're, they're campaigning on some sort of land allocation policy, you know, that... Maybe we're going to share it out a bit more fairly than we have in the past. That there's also going to be a tax placed on the landowners. You know, classic lower class kind of stuff. You know, we should tax the people that have money, not the people who don't have money. Yes, although, once again, I have to stop myself, Dr. G. I'm falling into that old pattern. 
We have to remember that some of the plebeians are very wealthy. It's just that they don't have a stranglehold on power like the patricians seem to have. This is true. It does turn out that it's more about who you were born to rather than how much wealth you possess. Exactly. And that opens up all sorts of doors like priesthoods and consulships and whatnot. All right, so that's 424 BCE. That is 424. Okay, so let's let's hit the ground running with 423 BCE. All right, 423 BCE, Dr. G. And since I know that Dionysius is still breaking your heart with his broken pieces of source material, I'm going to let you tell me who the magistrates are for this year. Oh, I thank you. There is a little (laughs) bit of interest when it comes to who we've got in our uh, sort of the players for this year. So we've got a couple of consuls, which are a nice change of affairs, really. We have a well. That's sad to me, though, because it suggests that all that stuff I just talked about didn't come to pass. <laughs> Those people put themselves up for election and did not get voted in. <laughs> but how? But this is the thing. Okay, this is where our source material makes no sense. How would they be running for office if it's not military tribunes with consular power? Yes. They can't run for the consulship. So precisely. I mean, we do have real issues with the source material. There is no doubt about it. (laughs) Yeah, we really do. Um, Yeah, the plebeians not being allowed at this stage, as far as we're aware, to run for the consulship. So maybe the elections got a little bit messy and maybe they changed their minds about what kind of elections they were having. You know, I'm just trying to paper over what are our gaping holes of logic in the material. maybe, maybe there's no such thing as the consulship at this point in time. (laughs) (gasps) Horror, shock. Blasphemy, I know. Anyway, I'll skate over that. Well, okay, so there are two men who are more in charge than anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) One of them is Gaius Sempronius Atratinus. Mm, I recognize these names. Well, Atratinus is an interesting name because it raises the question about whether patrician or plebeian, as it happens, because Atratinus in the later centuries of the Republic is an exclusively plebeian name. Interesting. In this early period, we're pretty sure that this is a patrician name only. Uh, mm. You've dashed my hopes, Dr. G. <laughs> How will I carry on for the rest of the episode? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I hope you can pick yourself up and continue on. But if you can't, I'll just keep uh, going through the roll call sheet. <laughs> and that will be the whole episode. <laughs> Please, save yourself. Um, so... Atratinus uh, definitely has plebeian flavour about it, which might explain some of the narrative choices of our analyst historians for the previous year. We're like, is this guy a plebeian? And the scholarship seems to fall down on the side of probably not at this stage. Okay. Um, But later on, we'll get the re-emergence of this name under a plebeian gens. So that will happen. So our second consul is Quintus Fabius Vibulanus. Yeah. And so this family has come up quite a bit. So one of the fabulous Fabii is back. And of course, naturally. we've seen quite a lot of the Vibulani as well. But this guy doesn't appear to have held any positions as yet. So this seems to be his first foray into the consulship. So that's exciting okay. news for him. It is indeed. Go Quintus. <laughs> we also have a named tribune of the plebs, a guy called Gaius Unius, who mm. I suspect you might have more to say about. And we also have a prefect, so a military position, a guy called Sextus Tempanius. Ah, uh, yes, I have much to say about this young man. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very excited to talk about him. But I love the fact that he's named as a prefect because it gives me images of him in a very sharp navy blazer with little badges on it. He, maybe that's just because I'm a school teacher. <laughs> he also is apparently a decurio, more specifically of the cavalry under Sempronius. So. This roll call sheet hints to me that there is some military action that happens in 423 BCE. But realistically, 
all I've got are a couple of fragments. One from Dionysius of Halicarnassus, praise be. A little snippet from Valerius Maximus. And then I'm basing all the rest of my knowledge from a little bit of extra scholarship research that I've done. Well, allow me, allow me to step in because this is a banner year for Livy. I mean, we haven't had this much detail in I don't even know how long, honestly. Who knew that 423, Rome was the place to be? (laughs) Oh, I'm excited now. Livy does tell a good story, so I'm going to strap myself in. He does. So you can jump in with your fragments when appropriate, but not a moment earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Noted, noted. (laughs) All right. So as you've noted, I have the same consuls that you do. So this is good. So we start off our story with an Etruscan city, Dr. G. In fact, one I don't really recall us talking much about in its original form, and that is Volturnum. Ah, okay. So in contrast to you already... I have reference to a Volskian border city called Verugo. Ooh, okay. And this okay, they like, may be the same place. Well, okay, so Volturnum actually is now Capua. Ah, okay. I'm sorry, I, when, I, when I say now, I mean, I mean obviously in the Roman sense of now, as in later on. Yeah. And Capua is in Campania, isn't it? It is, yes. Mm, okay, that's much further south than the hypothetical Verugo that I have reference to, which is to the southeast of Rome, but past okay. the uh, Frascati sort of region. So you've got to go beyond the hills. There's those volcanic hills to the southeast of Rome, and you go a little bit further past them, keep going southeast, and then you hit Verugo, which today we think is in the location of modern Colefero and Sacco. But it's not as far as Capua. <laughs> I'm so glad that you have travelled so extensively in Italy because I am just sitting here going, I know nothing about geography. <laughs> Look, I wish, just, I, wish I could tell a you. history teacher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maps, schmaps, maps. <laughs> maps, schmaps, colouring pencils. <laughs> Don't need them. <laughs> Anyway, no offense to any geography teachers out there. I actually love coloring pencils. So apparently this now later in time, like Livy's time, is Capua. And the reason why Livy kicks off with this account is because this city is captured by the Samnites, Dr. G. Mm, All right, I'll hold on to that detail. Indeed. Now, Livy goes on a bit of a tangent explaining how this city gained the name of Capua. And he has several theories Typical Livy. So the first is that it's from Capis. Oh. <laughs> that sounds bad. Oh, I is know, it? Sounds like I'm saying, sounds like I'm it, saying cat piss. Is it from cat piss? Because that's a no, bit. No, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that again. <laughs> Capis. <laughs> it still sounds bad. <laughs> uh, from its champagne country. And that's not champagne like the drink. Mm. But basically. Just sparkling I think cat piss. <laughs> I know. <laughs> sounding more and more appetizing every time. I really should have tried saying this out loud before I tried to explain it to you. Uh, But apparently what Livy's trying to get at here is some sort of word which means like open country or some sort of plain or battlefield, something like that. Okay. I suspect then we might be talking about very different places then because Verugo comes through in the Latin from Veruca. Right. Which which is uh, not what you might suspect. That is a wart on the side, (laughs) but... Like Veruca salt. (laughs) (laughs) It's, yeah, like uh, almost exactly the same. But from this idea of a a locus editus asperque, which is a high-lying rough place. So this kind of like mountainous, rocky outcrop. So it almost sounds like the very opposite. <laughs> yeah, it could not be more different. Because I also have other people saying, no, Livy is wrong. It actually probably stems from the word for orchid or garden. Oh, well, that's much nicer than cat piss, isn't it? It does sound, that's what I mean. Like I'm really misrepresenting this place, whatever it is. But I also have other scholarship, which suggests that it might come from a capite. And maybe once this place was the head of the Etruscan League. Oh. So like capite, like head. Yeah, like caput. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. But also it it is possible that it could come from this idea of like a plane or something like that. 
It could also be something that arose just because this is what the people who lived there were called and then, you know, the place name came from the people that lived there. Those the people have heads. plain dwellers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> heads and they live on flat land. It's a no-brainer, really, what we should call this place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like it. Um, or, third possibility, maybe a Trojan or Etruscan origin from a family, the Gens Capia. Oh, fancy yeah so really what i'm reading here in the scholarship and livy is that we have no freaking idea why this place has ended up being called Capua. lots of theories no yeah. real evidence <laughs> indeed but to return to the samnites <laughs> and their issue with this place so i find this the most hilarious military story i've ever heard so far and that's saying something because we talk about the military a lot the etruscans apparently are just so exhausted they let the samnites come in so <laughs> I can just imagine some Etruscans just laying down in a faint, being like, I can't go on. Take the city if you must. I'm just going to yes. stay right here. <laughs> That's basically what they do. They're like, what? The Samnites at our gates? Oh, for goodness sakes. Just let them come in and take the place because, quite frankly, I don't have any fight left in me. You know what? I can't be bothered defending this place, and I won't. Indeed. So they seem to strike a deal in that they're like, look, if we don't put up any resistance, can we just share the city and the fields equally? And the Samnites are like, yeah, I guess that sounds pretty good. We don't have to stab anyone. Let's not Great. fight about it. Let's just split it in half. Yeah. Ah, uh, but Dr. G, you know, when something sounds too good to be true, Uh-oh. it often is. Yeah. So the Samnites move in. They start sharing the city and the fields with the Etruscans, but they're really just playing the waiting game, Dr. G, because one day when the Etruscans are suffering from the after effects of a holiday, read, eaten too much and have a massive hangover, the Samnites wake up in the middle of the night and kill them all. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds very Trojan warish, doesn't it? Well, yes. I mean, the Etruscans did just let them in, didn't they? Well, yeah, they didn't have to pretend with the whole horse thing, but nonetheless, like the whole waiting till everybody's asleep and then killing everybody. This might explain Sneakily. the Trojan name theory as well. Potentially, potentially. I mean, we all we all know that the Etruscans of the Romans are related to the Trojans, right? That's what they like to tell us. That's what they like to tell us. Now, the consuls that we've just been talking about... They happened to take up their office just after this happened. And I'm given the very specific date of the 13th of December. Oh, goodness. Okay. Happy birthday, everybody. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. So anyway, so they've taken up their office. The Romans receive intelligence from their own representatives because they have spies everywhere that the Volskians are now planning to invade them. Oh. Yes. Shocking. So I know it's military action just everywhere. (laughs) All right, so, and this is unconnected with the whole Samnites taking over the other spot situation, is it? Or is this interconnected? I don't think it's particularly connected. Okay. (laughs) I think it's more just, you know, something horrible that happened. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so the Latins and Hernetians then arrive and tell the Romans, hey, have you heard? The Volskians are planning to invade. And the Romans are saying, yes, as a matter of fact, we already knew that thanks to our spies, but good work, everybody. (laughs) Glad to see we're all on the ball. But the Lanzan Hanitians mostly wanted to speak to the Romans because they were spooked. The Volskians just seemed far too energetic and they were like, this is worrying. (laughs) They're moving around a lot and it has me quite concerned. Yeah, it is. Like they're, they're just carrying out the levy, you know. Men are just like, you know what, we need to get into things. We need to make sure that we have courage to deal with this threat It seems extremely worrying that they're levying so much. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if they're levying, they're about to send them against somebody. So Gaius Sempronius, one of our consuls, he comes into the play. He 100% has faith that fortune will see him through this mess. Because fortunes never faded for anyone, and fortune loves the Romans. He, of course, had led Rome to victory before on the battlefield. So he takes a fairly careless approach to organizing the Romans. He's like, yeah, yeah, I get you. The Volskians are a problem. It looks like we're facing issues. But don't you worry, guys. I've got this. I've so got this. 
I got this so much, I don't even really need to care about how things are being organized. Trust me, the gods are on my side. Exactly. Which means that Sempronius ends up entering battle without really thinking through his battle plan. (laughs) Who needs a plan? (laughs) Who needs a plan? I mean, I know I like to wing things every now and then, but generally not when people's lives are on the line. Well, you and Sempronius are clearly not going to get along. (laughs) Exactly. Now, the big issue, I think, with his lack of battle plan is that he has not placed his cavalry in a strategic position Mm. As Livy says, his lines were not strengthened with reserves. Oh, goodness. Okay. (laughs) This is problematic. I mean, the cavalry is both a very powerful element of any military outfit at this time period, but it is Mm. also a heightened risk in some senses, like the ways in which a cavalry is vulnerable is useful to know and maybe to plan for. I don't know if you heard me, Dr. G, but fortune is on our side, so just, like, chill out. (laughs) Praise be, Fortuna, and all your good works. I look forward to you winning the battle for me. (laughs) Yeah. And now here's my other favourite detail. Apparently, they're so disorganised that the Roman battle cries weren't even any good. Oh, what? They didn't organise their songs properly? I know, they're all over the shop, Dr. G. (laughs) One, two, three, four, we don't want this freaking... Battle? Wait, that doesn't rhyme. What's going on? (laughs) Are we to extrapolate from this that every time Rome has gone to war so far, they've come up with new battle songs? I think we are. And I think it means that, I mean, okay, as a school teacher, I'm going to tell you a little story. Whenever we have swimming carnivals and athletic carnivals, at most schools I've been at, there is usually time allocated at some point for the students in their respective houses to practice their chanting. Now, if schools and school children do this, I'm starting to picture the Romans getting together and being like, all right, guys, this is getting really serious. Some of us won't be coming home. It's time to practice our battle cries. (laughs) What are we going to chant this time, guys? (laughs) But I feel like that it would be more akin to perhaps not disparaging the chanting at athletics carnivals and swimming carnivals and so forth, because that (laughs) that is a real and genuine thing. But in addition to that, there's usually some tried and true chants that have a historical kind of impetus behind them that are part Mm. of the way in which you're brought into your particular sporting house or your sporting team. I'm thinking particularly about football and the way that the fandom has various songs that they already know and have learned that are for their team. So they, they've got one for when they're going really well. They've got one for when they want to sort of pep up the players. They've got one for when they're losing, but they want to disparage the opposition. And so the idea that they're coming up with new chants all the time for every single battle seems just, it, it's blowing my mind a little bit because I feel like Surely there would be some of the old classics mixed in. Oh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. But it seems that no matter what they're doing, new, old, doesn't matter. They're They're not any good. They're disorganized. And we can thank Sempronius for that. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no excuse. You ugly. Yeah, yeah, you ugly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, those Romans. Yeah. Anyway, so the Volskians are pretty confident after they hear these pathetic efforts at battle cries from the Romans. They're like, oh, my God, they haven't rehearsed, guys. We've got this in the bag. (laughs) Now, the Romans don't really know what to do. I think they're feeling it. They know they're unprepared. So they're looking around for a hero because they're very timid when they go into battle. They just don't really know what's happening. It seems like they haven't got, you know, adequate leadership And very quickly, things turn against them because their heart's just not in it. They don't have confidence. I mean, this is just a classic lesson. I mean, the Romans are some of the most arrogant, confident people I've ever met. And yet, even they are proving that if you don't have your head in the right place and you're not projecting confidence, people out there are going to eat you alive. They will know. They will know. So the front line ends up retreating and they even leave their standards behind. (gasps) Okay, this is shocking news. I I mean, I'm so sad I have no source material for this year now. Uh, Losing the standards, that is is the worst thing that can happen, basically. 
I know. And I thought it might be good to remind our listeners, and you're the perfect person to do it, why the standards are so important. Well, the standards, my friends, my dear listeners, are so important because they represent almost like the energy of the entire group that works under that standard. Like it's got a vested totemic symbolism about it. So it's the Mm. sort of thing that you can sort of galvanize people around. You can use it to indicate where people are on the battlefield. Obviously it's quite visual and striking, but the really significant thing is the sense in which there's a characteristic about it that's really imbued with the character of the men who fight under that standard. So Mm. I would imagine that uh, things like war cries and things like that may actually incorporate references to their own standards and so Mm. forth and so on in order to emphasize that relationship. So there is a quasi-religious divine element to the standards. And so when they are lost, there is a sense in which the whole character of that particular unit is broken down and cannot be reunified until they get that standard back. Now, this sounds obviously terrible and it sounds like the Volskians are just, you know, a shoo-in for victory. But don't write the Romans off just yet, Dr. G. Whilst the Volskians are definitely prevailing at this point in time, the Romans aren't in like a full-on retreat. They're just like confused and dropping back and just trying to stay alive at this point in time. The Volskians, of course, are pursuing the advantage and they're really pushing on. But Livy makes sure to emphasize that the Romans are more being killed than running away, which makes me certain that they were, in fact, running away. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, that's, yeah. that's when you get killed the most is when you're running away. <laughs> yeah. You've exposed your backside to the enemy. I know, but I don't feel like Livy has it in him to actually record the Romans acting like that. So he's like, oh, yeah, they're being totally cut down, but they're not running away. <laughs> Oh, Libby, always trying to save Rome's reputation. I know. That's that's purely my own instinct, though. Nobody's told me that. Anyway, so more and more Romans are falling back because the battle's really falling apart for them. What is our consul Sempronius doing about it? Sweet F.A., Dr. G. He's trying really hard to inspire them, and he's getting angry with them, being like, turn around, for goodness sakes, my God, get back out there. Fortune's on our side, you idiot. But his anger is doing nothing. And I'm going to directly quote my translation of Livy because I really like this sentence. There was no virtue either in his authority or in his dignity. Oh, snap. I know. I know. That's a burn on so many levels. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know if Sempronius is coming back from this, to be honest. Just you wait, Dr. G. All right. So. The Romans were at that point, finally, where they were about to commit the worst sin possible and all turn their backs on the enemy, thus exposing them to being wounded or killed in the back as they run away. The shame, the shame. There's nothing nothing less dignifying in terms of weirtos for a Roman to get wounded on the back. But then, Dr. G, our hero, comes into the story. A cavalry decurion named Sextus Tempanius saves the day with his amazing courage. Now, a little background on what a decurion is. So as far as I could figure out, a decurion is in command of 10 men. So it's not just a clever name. (laughs) And he seems to be in a similar position to a centurion, but just for the cavalry, not the infantry, which is what the centurion is usually in charge of. All right. Sounds fancy. So he's in charge of 10 horsemen, essentially. Yeah. So apparently there would be three decurions in a squadron, which is called a terma. And there are 10 terma in three centuries of horse, which would go along with a legion. Thank you very much. Notes in my lerb translation. (laughs) So a terma would have 30 cavalry plus the three decurio. Yes. And then how many is that in the century? Then there are 10 terme in three centuries, which is far too much math for me to do publicly because that means dividing things up. No, no, that's 30 by 10. So there's 300. Right. Excellent. Let's stick with that. <laughs> it's a lot of horses. I'm, I'm just trying to visualize like how many horses am I well, imagining that's here? I mean, yeah, like, that's, it's, that's... it's quite a lot of horses. It is, but that's a, that's saying that you have three centuries. I don't know how many people we have here right now. That's true. Anywho... 
The other weird little detail I'm going to throw in there is that the name Tempanius is very unusual. It seems that nobody else has it. Mm. Well, mm. that is not a vote of confidence in favour of this story being true then. Pish tosh, Dr. G. <laughs> this guy's about to be a plebeian hero. <laughs> okay, I, I might bring in Dionysius's fragment here. Okay, Not do because it. I think it fits where we're at in the narrative because it's not at all clear to me from what you've told me where this might fit but I'll just give it to you and you might have some ideas about where it goes okay so he's talking about Sempronius and Sempronius Uh has learned that the enemy is coming up in the rear Uh uh-huh and he's despaired of being able to turn back with the men right And he's also concerned about being surrounded by the enemy on all sides. Interesting. Okay. And so there is a sense that Sempronius at this point decides to see if they can take the high ground. Right. It's like if we're going to have to defend ourselves and we're going to get surrounded, we need to get to the top of that little hill over there as fast as we can. Okay, I see where your story fits in. Continue. (laughs) That is my entire fragment. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right, all right. Well, let me, let me, I'll show you where your story fits in. Here we go. So Sexus Champanius shouts to the cavalry that anybody who wants to save Rome needs to get down off his horse right now. Now the men obey him as though he was the consul, which of course he is not. (gasps) He is just a humble decurion. And he tells them that they are the ones that can save everything now. All they have to do is follow him into battle. And he cries out, Show Romans and Volscians that when you are mounted, no cavalry are your equals, nor any infantry when you fight on foot. And the men are like, amazing. I love this. Let's do it. But I also feel like it doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, he's just said to the cavalry, dismount and fight as if you're infantry. Yeah, so he's saying, let's show everyone that we're amazing when we're cavalry and we're also amazing when we're infantry. They've been losing while they've been cavalry. No, no, no. They haven't been in the right spot. You don't understand. (laughs) We've been undermined by Sempronius. I see. Mm. Yes. My visualization on this battle is all over the shop. (laughs) Well, I think that that makes everyone involved because it is obviously a chaotic battle. Everybody's, yeah, there's a lot of chaos. So under Sextus Champanius, he manages to lead them wherever the hell he wants on the battlefield because they are, they're almost in like berserker mode, Dr. G, to use a problematic term from the Vikings for no apparent reason. And they make their way to the most desperate part of the battle. The Romans would not have been able to win without these guys on the battlefield. This is clear. Mm. Now the Volsci in general sees them in action and he's like whoa those guys cannot be stopped so he orders his troops to allow the superstar romans to gain ground with the clever strategy of allowing them to gain so much ground that they could be cut off from everyone else and this is where i think your story is going to start to come in it works they are cut off and they are unable to break through The remainder of the Roman army could not and would not, however, allow them to be lost. They are determined to come to their aid and push through. Now the Volscians are facing attack from two sides. Tempanius and his little band of followers, they manage to establish themselves on a mound and they sort of position themselves in a circle and they defend themselves there. This battle is going on forever. So long that it actually becomes night. Oh, goodness. Okay. I know. This this actually taps into the other single piece of evidence that I have, which is from Valerius Maximus. So the consuls are determined to keep fighting as long as it was possible because right now the battle does not have a clear outcome. It is just the most confusing battle I think we've ever talked about. And now that it's nighttime, it's only going to get more confusing, I would suspect. Yeah. So each side in their camps are terrified because they don't really know what is happening, who's won, who's lost, what's happening. So they both decide to abandon their wounded and some of their baggage, which would be in their camps, so that they can retreat to the nearest hills. 
Okay, and this is where I think there's, there's some, you know, tie-in with what you were saying about the hill thing. Mm-hmm. But the mound with Tempanius and his men, that continues to be attacked until after midnight. Oh, goodness. I know, this is a crazy long battle. Now, when Tempanius hears that the Roman camp had been abandoned, don't know how he heard that, maybe someone shouted it out really loudly because this is maybe a smaller scale battle than it sounds. It obviously makes it sound like the Romans have been defeated and they've just fled. You know, they've panicked and they've just gone. Tempanius is really worried about an ambush taking place at this point in time. So he takes a few men to check out the situation. I don't know how he manages to, to do this, but apparently he manages to do it's, this. It's dark. I don't know. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, they're in a circle and they're defending their mound. So maybe it's not like full on like ah Hollywood fighting all this time. People have got to be tired. It's more like, uh, uh. <laughs> and somebody else yeah. being like, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. Now, Tempanius stops along the way to chat to some wounded Volskians, as you do. And he realizes that their camp is also being deserted. Wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. So he calls out to the rest of his men and he's like, let's go to the Roman camp. (laughs) Okay. So they all go to the Roman camp and everything's very abandoned and it's looking very sad. However... Tempanius does not want the Volskians to find out about the sad state of the Roman camp because, of course, they would naturally attack. So Tempanius took as many wounded as he could and leaves Rome. He has no idea where Sempronius, the consul, has actually retreated to or gone. Meanwhile, the people back in Rome have heard that the battle is not going very well And people are already mourning the losses because they kind of presume that a lot of people are dead, particularly people in the cavalry. They think it's really bad news. Now, our other consul, Fabius, has obviously been keeping charge of the city and he's keeping watch at the gates and he's trying to reassure the Romans who are panicking. But then he sees cavalry off in the distance and he's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, this can't be good. But as the cavalry get closer... Guess who it is? Is it some? It's Tempanius. Uh, I was going to say, I'm like, it's either Sempronius or Tempanius. <laughs> yeah, it's Tempanius. And everyone's like, woo! Everyone starts partying. The women don't even care about their appearance. They're just in the streets throwing themselves into the arms of their men. Like, hooray, you're not dead after all. Yay. Okay. Yeah. I, this is where I think I should pause and ask you about your piece of evidence from Valerius Maximus. Yeah, like, I'll give it, you the piece of evidence. It's There's not a lot, and it is confusing because... Okay. One, first of all, Tempanius is never mentioned at all. <laughs> so right. I have no idea who this guy is. But we have a reference to a badge of glory that must be rendered to Rome's young warriors. So the consul Gaius Sempronius Atratinus is unsuccessful uh, in battling with the Volsci at this place called Verugo. Right. And this may be the place where your battle is at with a different name in a different place. Leave that detail aside for now. I don't think I've mentioned the name, to be fair. (laughs) And Valerius Maximus emphasizes that to save the Roman line, which was already yielding from a complete rout, these young warriors dismounted from their horses, arranged themselves in centuries, and dashed into the enemy host. So we've got that nice parallel with Livy's account in that they they get down from their horses and like, we're going to do it infantry style. We do what we must. Yes, absolutely. Dividing themselves up, they occupy an adjoining hill and they draw themselves, they draw to them the full Volscian force. Right. Thus allowing the other Roman legions that are in disarray some respite to recover their morale. And presumably that all matches up. Presumably that's where Sempronius is. Yes. And they're not sure how this all turns out in the end ultimately though so it gets to night time the battle technically ends uh with nightfall because people can't see enough to keep doing battle and mm. everybody withdraws but nobody's really sure who's won awkward yeah so from this kind of evidence 
in a way, this kind of makes a little bit more sense than Livy, I would say. Not well, well, I feel like it's kind of the same story, though. Well, it's tricky because, like, we've had other instances in the past where the battle has gone all day, but it tends to finish at night because it's hard to keep going. At oh, yeah, point. the nighttime stuff. The nighttime stuff is totally made up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what Valerius Maximus is saying here is that when night does come, actually, the enemies split apart and they go back to their respective camps, essentially. But nobody's sure of the outcome of the battle yet. So there's been no clear winner. And this happens quite frequently in ancient warfare as well with the Romans. We've heard stories of this before where they return the next day and they have another battle. So that sort of thing is where Valerius Maximus is heading with his piece of evidence. But he he doesn't mention anybody by name except for Sempronius, but he does talk about this group of young warriors who really do save what was going to be a disaster uh, for the legions that were already on the ground. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I think I I agree. I think we've got that matchup in terms of the young warriors who are cavalry, who make themselves into infantry, draw attention to themselves from the Volscians and allow the rest of the Romans to get themselves in order and do what they need to do. I definitely agree that it seems highly unlikely that they are fighting all day and then all night. That doesn't seem right. But anyway, so back in Rome, when Tempanius and the cavalry show up, the tribunes have already clocked off for the day (laughs) Um, because they are busying themselves with putting on trial Marcus Postumius and Titus Quinctius, who are being charged for their lack of success at Vey. Now, this is a throwback to the year 426. I was going to say they've left they've left their run a bit late. It's like that was years ago. <laughs> they've been worried about other matters, Dr. G. Fair clearly. enough, fair enough. But I think that they are I think they're seeing an opportunity presented with the ill feeling towards Sempronius right now because Sempronius has also obviously done a terrible job in this battle in that these young warriors had to come to the rescue. And so they're like, you know what? This is an opportune moment for putting these guys on trial because everyone's really hating on Sempronius right now. It's the same story all over again. Now, just to remind listeners, 426 may or may not be the year in which we had that momentous fight over... Fidene and Vey, and we had uh, the most ridiculously handsome Cornelius Cossus coming out, maybe killing an Etruscan king of Vey, last Tolumnius in this year. We had a dictator, Emilius Mamacinus. We that was that year. That was the, that's what we're throwing back to at this point in time. So the tribunes call a meeting, and they say, you know what, the Romans have been betrayed by their generals at Vey. And there were no consequences. Now, once again, the army has been sent out against the Volscians and they've been let down by the consul. The The cavalry has practically been slaughtered. The camp has been abandoned. This is absolutely disgusting. And this is where we get the named tribune coming in, Gaius Unius. Aha, he's in. (laughs) The tribune Gaius Unius summons Tempanius to speak and he asks him, tell me, Tempanius, how did Sempronius prepare for battle? Do you think what he did was adequate? Was it in fact you who rallied the cavalry on that day and came up with the battle strategy that saved our asses? When the cavalry ran into issues and was cut off from the rest of the army, Did the consul come to your rescue? Did he even send you any help? Was he even there the next day when you managed to make your way to the camp? Or did you in fact find the camp abandoned, filled only with the wounded and the stuff that was left behind? I want the truth! Oh, how intense. I know, and you know exactly what Tempanius says. You can't handle the... Tr- no, he doesn't say that. <laughs> He's very calm. He's very calm. He is cucumber-like, very measured. He doesn't seek the glory for himself, and he does not want to criticize anybody. My translation describes this as soldierly dignity. Stiff up a lip and what, what? Exactly. He says, look, wasn't up to me. 
I'm just a mere soldier to evaluate the performance of my general. The Roman people had deemed him worthy of that position when they selected him. So let's just move on, shall we? And as for my role with the cavalry, I only do what I must do in the heat of battle. Any, any other decurio would have done the same. <laughs> exactly. He also goes on to testify, look. I saw the consul fighting. I saw him fighting at the front. I saw him encouraging the men and running around between the standards amidst enemy fire. <laughs> I could not see everything, of course, because that would be insane and meant I had a thousand eyes like a fly. But I could hear the battle raging into the night. And I do not think, quite frankly, that it was possible for anyone to reach me and my men. There were just too many enemy. What you ask is unreasonable. <laughs> oh, dear. He presumed that the consul had simply taken the rest of the army to a safe place. And in fact, that is what he had done. And it makes complete and utter sense that he did so. <laughs> Where is Sempronius? Has he turned up back at Rome at this point in time? Or are people like, that man's AWOL? And half the army, we don't know where it is. <laughs> just you wait, just you wait. Okay. <laughs> Now, the Volscians, of course, also were in the same tricky position. Everyone was confused because not only was it a confusing battle, but it was nighttime for a huge chunk of it, apparently. Yeah, look, it's really hard to tell how it went. I couldn't see anything, including the enemy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tempanius is finally allowed to sit down after this damning testimony. No, not really. After this testimony, which does nothing to damn anybody. Tempanius? as we can call yeah. him, because he's in pain a lot. <laughs> anyway, so he's dismissed and everyone's like, wow, what a guy. I mean, could I be any more in love with him? Not only has he rescued the Romans, but he has also not actually taken up this opportunity to win all this praise for himself. He's just so humble and brave. I mean, I think I'm ovulating right now. So much weird to us right now. <laughs> now, you asked about Sempronius. Let me tell you about where Sempronius is. Yeah, where's Sempronius? This guy is missing in action. Yeah, so he's traveling along somewhere called the Labakan Road. You may know where this is. I do not. Not offhand, no. <laughs> okay. So he apparently reaches a shrine, the shrine of the, I think it's the Quies. Quies. It's spelled Q-U-I-E-S. Mm. Quies? Mm, never heard of it. Probably should have looked that up, actually. But anyway, he reaches this particular shrine. Wagons and animals are sent out from the city because he's obviously close enough to Rome that they, I guess, can see him coming or he sent word ahead. And they're like, you guys must be tired. Let us help you out. And they're like, thank you. God, I am exhausted. This battle seemingly never ended. Now, the consul is in the city soon after this, and he clearly wants to single Tempanius out for praise because he recognizes that Tempanius was the hero of the day. However, he's also a trifle defensive about what went down. Fair enough. It's always awkward when you go into something full of confidence with no preparation and then it doesn't work. <laughs> Who knew? That it would blow up in your face. I feel like this is one of those situations where we can say, I tried nothing and I'm fresh out of ideas. <laughs> I mean, it's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. So the citizens are absolutely spurious, furious in their rage against Sempronius. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. They're also pretty mad about the guys from a few years back now because of Sempronius. <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah, I remember that thing at Vey. You military tribunes with consular power, good for nothings. And so they are in fact put on trial before the people. And Marcus Posthumius, one of the military tribunes with consular power, is fined 10,000 pounds of bronze for his sheer stupidity. <laughs> that is a, that's a lot of bronze. Poor man. It is. Oh, all right. Didn't lead well now, enough and there's a price to be paid. That's good to know. There is indeed. Uh, so the tribunes are coming forward with some effective strategies for trying to, like, you know, keep the patricians in check a little bit. Being like, sure, you can lead the army, but that does mean you have a responsibility to be good at leading an army. And if you're not going to do it properly, maybe don't get us all killed. 
Exactly. Now, you might be wondering, Dr. G, what about that other guy? Because Marcus Postumius was not alone when he was in charge of the forces at Vey, and you were quite right. Titus Quinctius. Now, this is a family we've had a lot to do with. This is, in fact, we think, the brother of Cincinnatus. So he belongs to that gens. Mm, one of the famed Cincinnatis. Yeah. Now, he has had some military success. He has won some victories against the Volscians. Not difficult, given that the Romans fight the Volscians all the time. Case in point. (laughs) And he also had been part of one of the Roman victories at Fidene because he was lieutenant to the dictator Aemilius. So he's not in quite as much doo-doo as posthumous. He has had some successes in his military command history. He has. Now he comes forward and completely throws posthumous under the bus. Oh. Yeah, he is acquitted by all the tribes because he pins all the blame for everything that went wrong in 426 on posthumous. Wow. Cincinnatus, not cool. <laughs> I know. Apparently, though, people also feel sorry for him because they still love Cincinnatus. I mean, what's not to love about Cincinnatus? He has not got a great fortune, and yet he still serves the state tirelessly. Whenever they call on him, he's there. Oh, he's basking in the reflected light of uh, familial connection, is he? (laughs) It would seem so because it seems as though by this point he is finally dying and nobody wants to tell him that this is where his family is at. (laughs) Disgrace. Your family is now out of favour. Sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Now, whether any of this is in fact true is obviously a moot point. There seems to be something going on here. Although, interestingly, I did read that the Quinctii and the Posthumii are often very closely related because there's uh, some marriages going on in between their families. So, interesting. Mm, I want, yeah, maybe some family jealousy at play here. I was going to say, yeah, it's possible that this is a bit of a falling out between the families here. Quite possibly. Mm, the drama, yes. the gossip. I know. So that's kind of where 423 winds up for me. We'll probably be picking up some of the pieces of this, I think, into the next year. But I would like to note before we sign off here that I have enjoyed this episode so much because it has so many of our classic characters that Livy likes to bring in. The troublesome tribunes, the heroic soldierly plebeians. I love it. Yeah, I think there's a there's a good uh, story element to what Livy has brought to the table for 423. So I'm excited to have learnt all the details from you and uh, to have thrown in a couple of details along the way as well. Yeah, well, the interesting thing I think about the whole story about Sempronius, because this is quite a prominent family, and as you signalled at the beginning, it is interesting because the Sempronii seemingly start out as a plebeian gens and become patricians and then we know that they're going to have an association with the plebeians again so it's really interesting that you noted that plebeian connection with atratinus coming in later as well like clearly there's a bit of interesting stuff going on here with this particular family and obviously different branches of the family i would say yeah and i think this gives us a a sense of insight into the shifting sands that is the nature of the Roman elite and the hierarchies that might be at play in the Roman state. We're never really quite sure where people sit exactly. And we know uh, this harks back into that big idea that we've mentioned before where we're not really sure where the elites are coming from. We're not sure whether they're patricians or known as patricians at this stage. But there is, there does seem to be a division between the citizens that can hold certain positions and the ones that cannot. And the Sempronii seem to be one of these families that straddles both of these categories across the centuries. Definitely. And one of the other things that Livy may in fact be playing with here, which we have come across before, is this, and this is not Livy alone, this is a, a bit of a Roman trait, 
This assumption that people from the same family behave the same way, no matter how much time has passed. We've seen that very much with the Appius Claudiuses that we have encountered over time, with each one of them just becoming even more despicable than the one before. <laughs> got to uphold the family tradition. I've got to try and outdo my ancestors in being terrible and arrogant. <laughs> yeah, and it would seem that this might be the case with Sempronius, because this battle which has taken place at Verugo, you are quite correct about that being the location of this Volskian battle, it seems to mirror very closely a very famous battle from the Second Punic War. So in 218 BCE, there was a battle at Trebia, and one of the people leading that battle is a guy called Tiberius Sempronius Longus. Now, you're going to see some really strong parallels here because, once again, we've got a consul who is not preparing properly. We see him making foolish decisions when preparing for the battle, not being properly prepared. And then we see a division of forces into two groups and them only managing to escape through sheer luck. And also, this battle was rescued because of the dismounting of the cavalry to fight as infantry at Cannae. So it seems to be a blending together of some stories that come from the Punic mm. War and are being maybe used to construct the battle here. Now, as you've noted many times, Dr. G, I am not insinuating that this battle did not in fact happen and that the Romans are in fact making it all up and just using a later story to invent their history. But they might be fleshing out the details when they know that there's a defeat of a consul called Sempronius who ends up getting himself into a hell of a lot of amount of trouble by using some of the details from this Punic War battle and probably drawing on some family yeah. you know, folklore here. Yeah, definitely. I think you're quite right about stuff like that, where the family legacy and the idea of inherited characteristics is very much something the Romans are into. They read backwards as well as forwards into their family lines with this kind of thing. So yeah, I'm willing to buy that theory and I look forward to the day we get to the Battle of Cannae so we can not only go through that particular battle in incredible detail, but then also have a think back to this particular battle as well. Absolutely. Trebia and Cannae, I'm there in like 20 years with you. It'll happen. <laughs> it's a date. <laughs> I will see you there. <laughs> Absolutely. And that really brings me, therefore, to the end of what I have for 423, and I don't want to go into 422 just yet. That means it is time for the partial pick. <whistles> All right, Dr. G, tell us about the partial pick. The partial pick. There are 50 golden eagles up for grabs. Rome, can they do it? We will find out. There are five categories. There are 10 golden eagles on offer in each category. Our first category is military clout. Ooh, this is an awkward one because they're clearly doing really badly for a while. And I don't think they really win so much as not lose. I think it's pretty awkward to suggest that they have military clout when it seems like what has happened has been a failure in leadership to really pull the battle together. Yeah. It sounds like they could have easily won this if they'd been prepared. Well, I mean, they've beat the Volskians so many times. I mean, come on, of course they could have won it. Nobody's expecting them to lose at this point, so it's awkward that they have. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, what are we going to give them? Like maybe a three to recognise... Tempanius and his crew. Yeah, the amazing turnaround provided by Tempanius and his dismounting of the cavalry. Look, yeah, I think that deserves some sort of reward. Maybe a four. Um, Am I being too harsh? No, I was going to go even less, actually, because I think a lot of what Tempanius does might fit into a future category. Okay, fair so enough. So okay, I'd be so going for, go like, two. Oh, okay, two. All right, a two. All right. Our next category is diplomacy well we're at war so <laughs> you say diplomacy i say no thank you yeah and i mean if even if we look at the random story that livy decided to tell me about what happened at capua no diplomacy there either <laughs> uh 
Yeah, I mean, people just gave up, didn't they? That was the most random story. I think I think Livy was just trying to explain where the name Capua came from. Yeah, but why now? Very strange. Mm. All right, uh, that's that's a no. That that's is a, a no. zero. That is a zero. Yeah. All right, expansion. I don't get the sense that they're winning any territory here. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. No. Okay, that's a clear zero as well. All right. I think there might be a bit of a comeback in Weirtus. I agree. I mean, I think it has to be a 10 out of 10 for this guy. I mean, he comes out of nowhere. He does his duty in battle. He puts himself at risk. He manages to fight an amazing battle and make it out alive, saving probably the life of the cavalry with him, as well as also you know preserving the Romans from utter defeat. And then when he gets back to the city, he doesn't even want to brag about it. I might have a stroke. <laughs> uh, well, if you run into this guy in a bar, you can have him. <laughs> I'll be your wing woman. Uh, yeah, there's an amazing display of weird to us here, I think. And I don't know that I can give it a 10, though. So that's my, that's my hesitation because this is not a clear victory. Wow. Way to be harsh, Dr. G. My God, the years have made you cruel. <laughs> I feel like if it was... But he and his band, I think they have been victorious in like preserving the Roman army from slaughter, defeat, disgrace. And not only that, they haven't even died themselves. I mean, sure, I'm sure that a couple of them have died, but they've made it out alive. They got back to the camp. And then he didn't even throw Sempronius under the bus. I mean, what more do you want from little old Tempanius? <laughs> all right, all right. He's a plebeian. He's a plebeian. I'll give him a 10. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and our last category is the citizen score. Okay, I don't think this is probably great. <laughs> it's not an ideal time to be a Roman citizen. Um, you have been signed up and levied into an army that is being poorly led. Yes. Generally speaking. Yeah. It seems like we don't know the outcome of this battle. So lives are definitely lost. We know there was plenty of injuries. One of the things Tempania seems to do is go back and rescue some of the injured from the camp. I have a feeling it's conceded to be like a tie because they're both mm. they're both panicked. They're both in disarray. Neither one has dominated. So, yeah, I think it's an inconclusive battle for sure. Although, in a way, I think the Romans also kind of look at that as being just as bad as a defeat because it shouldn't have been such a close-run thing. Yeah, so it's not, it's not great uh, if you're a plebeian and you're serving in the infantry. Yeah, nonetheless, we do see the tribunes coming out and being like, hey... That's true. Leveling some prosecutions against the uh, generals of former times. Yeah, and, and current times. Oh, they're coming for Sempronius. <laughs> Just you wait. Yeah, so Stay I, tuned. <laughs> I, I, like, I like the accountability, so that's at least something. Okay, I'd say on, a, on the accountability side of it, I'd be inclined to give it a five and above. Ooh, okay, I'm going to go five because I don't think it's that amazing. I mean, he's fine. Like, big whoop. Don't know how much bronze you got lying around, but, uh, you know, it's going to be tough. <laughs> Look, sure, it's a huge fine and everything. But, I mean, you know, we know how the elites work. He'll be getting money passed to him from his other patrician buddies. He won't be really doing it tough. Come on. He'll be fine. He'll yeah. be fine. He'll land on his feet. He's, a, he's from the Postumii. He'll be fine. It's true. Yeah. All right, so a five. Yeah, so that means, Dr. G... The Romans have earned themselves a grand total of 17 golden eagles. Well, it's not a pass, but it's better than some other times. <laughs> Look, I think it's better than I was expecting, given that this is not really a great military year for them. It did seem like mostly a rout. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Absolutely. So 17, not too shabby. Largely thanks to one hero. <laughs> one battle one man standing out from the crowd yeah stepping down off his horse to fight in the trenches indeed and i think that we have also exposed livy to being sued for violating the plot line of a few good men how 
dare he? I know. He totally stole that courtroom scene. Embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to write him a strongly worded letter. We will indeed. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to learn all about 423 BCE with you, Dr. Rad. Indeed it has, Dr. G. I will see you next time for 422, when no doubt we'll still be referring back to this horrible year. (laughs) Oh yeah, the legacy of this is going to take some time for Rome to get over. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. You can find our sources, sound credits, and an automated transcript in our show notes. Our music is by Bettina Joy de Guzman. You too can support our show and help us to produce more engaging content about the ancient world by becoming a Patreon. In return, you receive exclusive early access to our special episodes. Today, we'd like to give a special shout out to some of our heavy hitters or our most generous Patreons in no particular order. Ryan, Frederick, Michael, Dendrio, Amanda, Doran, Vincent, Sean, Virginia, Mickeus Procius, Dewis Augustus, Steve, AJ, Molly, David, James, John, Kylie, Chris, Anna, Aaron, Robin, Kylie, Liv, Elise, Ted, Austin, Ensley, Jacob, Theodore Art, Savannah, Joel, Sharon, and Roman. You can also support us, however, by getting a copy of our collaboration with Bridget Clark from Gumroad or deck yourself out in partial merchandise. But if all of these avenues are beyond your means, please just tell someone about the show or give us a five-star review. We just love having stars in our eyes. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.